Okay, so as we're talking about uh, the four horsemen, um, and the idea that the, 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 so these are the first four seals, so when they're broken, uh, these, these horsemen come forth, and there's all this horrible stuff that comes with it. And, and then um, what, what essentially is being said there, what John is trying to, to do um, is to, to kind of acknowledge the reality, right? Because there is a reality that's going on around them. Um, and that reality is almost like a sham. Um, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's like a, it's like a joke in a way, because the Romans are telling them um, that they have this. They have the Pax Romana, uh, the peace of Rome. You know, and and we touched on this a little bit because. Um, you know, in the in the, the minds of Romans, right? The, they they were bringing their culture, their advancements, their you know literature, their way of doing uh, government. That's awesome. Like a ch- <laughs> like a chime. It's like one of, you know those one of those chimes where you know like an orchestra where it's like it's so awesome. All right, so um, so they're telling so they're telling all these people. Why are you so resistant to this? Right? Um, we bring you peace through superior firepower. Right? So um, there's, there's going to be great peace for everyone as long as uh, you do what we say and you keep that, that money coming. Right? You keep the tributes coming or you keep the wheat coming or whatever it is that we want to, you know. Um, and so in, in Rome, they found... Uh, there was uncovered uh, barrels, uh, you know, like that were that had stamps of olive oil uh, merchants from the Galilee region. Um, you know, so so they were they, they were the, the greatest importers of everything, right? I mean, what did what did Rome export? War, war, <laughs> and ideas and an ethos, right? Sound a little familiar? I mean, you know, if we're we're kind of inching closer and closer and closer to that reality, um, you know, and and it's interesting to sort of, you know, as we start thinking about that, you know, we 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 live in an era where this kind of stuff is still happening, right? Um, you know, where you know, it's like to pay no attention to the man, right? <laughs> There's you know, don't look over there and see what's really going on. You know, we're going we're gonna to give you bread and circuses instead um, so that you're placated and that, you know, you won't pay attention as we completely take away all your freedoms, take away all your, you know what I mean? And that's, that's in reality. The peace of Rome came at a very high cost. And so um, no other culture probably knew that better than, than the Jewish culture, um, and they, they were – it's not that other cultures weren't resistant. I mean they were. I mean obviously, you know, the you – know, what they, they would eventually call the barbarians. So like the, the – you know, the, the Celts and the Gauls and all those people from, you know, what eventually became Western Europe and so forth. They resisted Rome um, for a very, very long time. And eventually, you know, they, they won. You know, they, they won. But um, – at this point in time, there's really not a lot of people that are resisting. I mean, they're able to go and just kind of do what they want. I mean, they, they were at their apex at this point. 
but <laughs> Jews, man, they were they just they were tough, um, and they it was they they were so entrenched in their uh, beliefs, you know, that they were not going to be, um, you know, they were they were not going to be compromised in, in, in so many ways. Now, I say that, and then you know, we also have all kinds of evidence in Jesus' time of people who were compromising with the Roman Empire. In fact. The whole temple system was a system that was compromising with the Roman Empire um, to basically keep one family in place as high priests and as the people who were collecting all the dough from the temple. Um, But, you know, so you've got this sort of sham idea of the peace of Rome. And then John the Revelator, you know, he's writing about this and the seals are broken. And it's like it doesn't, you know, this is coming, man. Um, And remember what we said last week. We talked about... um, this really interesting, this really interesting idea about um, these guys right here, right? So there was this idea of like the part, like a Parthian, um, which at the time, you know, these guys were pretty fearsome, and they were like on the outskirts of the empire, and they could ride in, and they they were they were quick, um, and you know they they were the archers from their their horses, um, and so forth, and so um, it's not. It's not a coincidence that that John used that as an image uh, for the first horseman. <coughs> and then the second horseman really, you know, the, the god of you know, the god of war is Mars, um, the god of war, um, on a red horse holding uh, a sword that I remember I, I kind of threw that out there at the end, um, that the same word or the same the same word that was used for this sword was the same word that would be used for uh, like a sword wielded by somebody like Mark Antony. Um, there's somebody that did some work on that, and it's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there. I mean, it's probably a, a case to be made that that's not true, but um, that kind of sparked my imagination as I was thinking about this whole sort of um, theme that that John the Revelator seems to be going, you know, using. So he's using this threat to Rome, uh, this these Parthians from the east who who are, you know. They're kind of scared of them. Um, not scared of them, but you know what I mean. So there's, there's that going on. And then you see this, this god of war that um, is wielding a sword from a, a, um, an alternate sort of history, right? Uh, Mark Antony's sword. So Antony was the one who went up against Octavius and, and who lost, right, uh, and who was Caesar Augustus. So if you guys ever, you know, if you ever watched Antony and, and Cleopatra, the Shakespeare play, um, it's, I mean, I don't know if you guys are into Shakespeare or not, but it's pretty, it's pretty awesome uh, to, to see that kind of play out, you know, the idea. So all of these rival, and, and in fact, I saw the play done once where everybody, it was, everyone was in military attire, like, like, uh, like modern-day fatigues and stuff. You know, so Antony was like this big, you know, guy that had, you know, like all these, you know, like as a Marine, you know, like, and Octavius was kind of like this skinny bureaucrat, but it was still like all, you know, he had all these medals, but where did he get them? You know, that kind of thing. So Antony was always like the man's man, that hero, the one, um, but then he lost, right? The alter, the idea is that the alternate history is what if Antony had won and now, right, uh, Rome is being besieged by its own past, you know, it's it's there are people within it that are that are you know thinking about that same thing. Like you know, um, it could have been so much different, right? 
Um, and then, of course, economic ruin, uh, the one on the black horse holding the scales. Um, and then at the, at the and then kind of, you know, all of these things are then followed by death. Um, this is a particular, particularly grotesque version of all that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of, this, this is like, um, um, this is in our, you know, in, you know, in the imagination, right? Um, the, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, I mean, that's, that's a, uh, that transcends this book. I mean, lots of people understand that when you talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they, they get that. This is something that's kind of, you know, um, kind of relevant even in our own day, right? So we talked about how if we're interpreting it within our lens, we can change some of these out and we can kind of find our own sort of boogeyman um, that could be uh, riding these horses. So that's what John was really doing. I mean, essentially he's saying, this is always, you know, you're always going to have these things going on. This is the reality, right? Um, it doesn't matter what, what the Romans tell you. It doesn't matter what the empire tells you. It doesn't matter... Like, this is the reality behind them. And guess what? They're going to fall one day. It's going to get at them. Um, okay. So, uh, anybody have any questions about the four horsemen? All right. Then that, um, okay, let's get to the next one. Fifth seal. Yeah, there's a, any, any Metallica fans in here? There's a, there's a Metallica song, The Four Horsemen, that's about, the, about these guys. Um, so, okay. So let's go. We're in Romans 6, or Revelation 6. I'm still in Romans. I'm still teaching Romans. Here. When he, um, and it's uh, Romans 6, verse 9. And so we're now at the fifth seal. Those were just the first four seals. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Okay, let's, let's hold on. Let's, let's, do the, let's do these first. Um... So what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Isn't that kind of what what is it what do you think John is sort of doing there? What is he trying to what is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to tell the people that were there that were reading this? All these things will happen in God's time, not ours. Okay. So there's there's a little bit of that that Kairos There's that Kairos time again, right? How long how long, O oh Lord, right? Um, that phrase occurs in the Bible a lot, <laughs> doesn't it? Because, I mean, it's still relevant, right, even today. Like, how long uh, till we go on? So the people that are speaking at this point are people who are, um, who in English, the word is witnesses. In Greek... Shortening it a little bit is the word martyr, right? So these are people who have been martyred. But, but uh, the Jewish temple, didn't they have the altar? And they brought the the uh, uh, gifts of, of meat and 
whatever mm -hmm. to, to the altar which was burned and is, maybe this is in relationship to something like that where these these are the gifts of the Christians to in that sense yeah I, I, I listen I definitely think that John is 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 drawing on that imagery and there's there's a connection there with that, right? Um, the idea of sacrifice, the idea of, um, of yeah, of, of gifts, yeah. even, yeah. It seems like there is the expectation that there will be more mortars, martyrs, because he tells them, you know, when they say how long, okay. until the rest. So now we're getting somewhere, right? So what John is telling him, um, so first of all, we've got this idea of Cairo's time, and then we've got these people who are who have been martyred. The people that are speaking are the ones who have already suffered through this. They've already gone through that. They've been they've been executed. We're assuming, you know, they were they were executed for their faith, right? And so, what John is telling um, these the people. So, if you're reading this, okay, and uh, this is the first century, there are already martyrs, and they are asking that big question of God. How long until justice is done? How long until, you know, we will see, you know, things be set to right? Um, and then uh, the, the voice comes back, you know, just a little longer, right? Until there are more. And not just more, but like, like the, there's like a fullness, right? I don't know. Is that how? I don't know how it goes. There's like a, until the full number or something like that. How did, I forgot how that went. Let me, let me read it again. To be complete. To be complete. Yeah. Full number of their fellow servants are better. Totally complete. So there's more fullness. Complete. Okay. So we can pick up some stuff on from what John is trying to do. First of all, he's he's saying to these people, there are going to be more martyrs. Okay, and and so the implication is, and you might be among them, right? But he does kind of put a he he puts like a number on it, but he doesn't really have an understanding of that number. He just says that when it's complete, you know, when the full the, the full number, um, when is that going to be? He doesn't specify. He doesn't say like he does in other places. There are X amount of people. You know, so when John gets specific about numbers, you know that the number is significant. The number itself is significant because of what it stands for, um, not necessarily because he's like stabbing at a number and, and coming to an exact number of how many people. There's a significance to all of the numerology um, in Revelation. It all it all makes sense to the people who are reading it. But when John is vague on numbers, uh, then you know that also means that. You know, either there's there's a couple things going on. A, he doesn't know what that number is, or B, he's trying to make a point that this is again all back to where we're dealing with God's timing and not ours, right? So if you're suffering and you're struggling and you're worried about being martyred, you're worried about losing, you know, your your life or you know your children's lives, your family's life. I mean, th that reality is is can be very pressing. Um, so in this particular moment when he shows the seal, when he does start breaking the seals, the, the fifth seal, and we get to the witnesses and we get to this, 
I mean, there's he's he doesn't pull any punches, but he also lets them know that there is an end to this, right? That at some point there will be justice. And then, then he gives them a vision of these people then sort of um, being kind of restored in a way, right? So um, then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants. So there was a rabbi, um, uh, Rabbi Akiva, who was probably one of the most... Um, probably one of the most well-known and well, most well-quoted rabbis um, in the um, second century, I believe. So Rabbi Akiva, and I could be wrong on that date, but at any rate, uh, Rabbi Akiva wrote, uh, to be buried in the Holy Land was to be buried under the altar. Um, and there's a sacrificial meaning that's attached now, like what, what you said, there's a sacrificial meaning that it's attached to the death of those who died for their faith. And so um, this sort of Roman chopping block kind of idea um, that's also sort of at work here, um, you know, it's, it's, it now is a cosmic altar, right? That they're under this altar, they've been sacrificed, but there's a symbol of protection because now nobody, what else can be done to them? They're given a white robe. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of restored in a lot of ways. They're told to rest, um, and they appeal to the sovereign Lord to right the wrongs that have been done to them. Um, and there is a promise there that sort of implied that that will be done when the fullness of time, right? When the, when that's always the key phrase, the, when the full number, the fullness of time, that's the, you know, that in fact, that's used with Jesus as well. You know, when the fullness of time had come, God, you know, became one of us, right? Uh, so that's all comes down to Kairos and not Kronos. So we talked about that last week. Because we tend to think of things in Kronos time, which, te- which makes you realize that these... So if you want to read into sort of John's theology about what happens to you when you die, it's kind of interesting. Uh, again, I'm kind of going off track. You guys want to... Are you interested in that? So like what John, is, what John talks about when he, when he says, this is what happens when you die. Um, first of all, um, you are at rest. Right, so that that's that's a good thing. Um, the second thing is that you've been given a white robe, right? So the the, the symbolism of that is important. So um, whatever has happened, whoever you were, whatever mistakes you made, whatever junk that you've done, it's forgotten, right? Um, because the idea of having a white robe means that you're now, you know, it's like you're. You know, you are restored to your rightful spot um, as a child of God and full heir to the throne, so, you know, so, so forth and so on. Um, the other thing is, is that they, they still have a sense, at least in his theology, they still have a sense of, of the way things used to work, right? Um, they have this idea of chronos time. They haven't yet quite grasped uh, God's sort of understanding of time. Um, but yet, um, they're invited sort of into that sort of eternal rest where they will wait, uh, until some time in the future, right? So what does that, so what, what does that mean to you? Like, how does that grab you? Um, 
I have this illusion that when we um, that when we die, you know, we go through that that uh, tunnel and and uh, there's all the clouds and the light and whatever at the other end. I didn't know we were going to be going into uh, purgatory, <laughs> a nice purgatory, and getting a white robe, and we get to rest. Again, I'm not saying that that's what happens. I'm yeah. saying that that's what John, right. you can see his theology peeking through, right? Like his his way of trying to understand that. I, I have a better way to understand it, okay? If you guys are, will indulge me. Um, so, I think you're. I think you're right. Um, I think that although there's plenty of evidence in the scripture to suggest that there is some sort of refinement that takes place. I mean, that's you know, the Catholic Church didn't just dream up uh, purgatory out of nothing. Although they've kind of distanced themselves from the idea of like of the, what they used to, what they sort of used to believe, um, and uh, it's it's much different now. In fact, it's probably more in line with what the, the ancient Jews uh, probably believed and what Paul himself kind of alluded to as well. See, Paul talked about this whole thing where, um, you know, you're going to be sort of refined by this, uh, this refining fire uh, that burns away all the, what he called the dross and the, the stuff that didn't matter and then whatever was left was precious, you know, metals and so forth. So, um <clears throat> I know a lot of people put a lot of, you know, they, they, put, they get caught up in the, the analogy because of the, the fiery stuff, and that's what we all do, right? Because we're all worried about that. Um, we're going to talk about the lake of fire and all that stuff uh, as well at some point in our, our journey. But... Well, can I share something? Yeah, you? yeah, go ahead. Okay, this is... This, woo! Some, you know. <laughs> uh, but my sister went to see a, a, a lady one time, and, and uh, she, you know... She really, I talked to her too one time, and she really knew a lot of stuff that was going on. But um, she told my sister, my sister asked her about her dad who had passed away, and she said, um, well, he hasn't gone on yet. They are working with him. <laughs> they are working with him. Okay. And so. then she dreamed later, had a dream, he had gone on. He passed. Um, okay. So let's think about this, right? Based on what we know from Scripture, based on what we're seeing here from John, based on, like, all the things that we sort of, the stories that we hear about near-death experiences, um, the stories that we hear about people who have, like, full-on conversations with their loved one who came and visited them, and then they find out that that loved one had passed away, like, the day before. I mean, there's, there's like, a ton of those. Um, so... You know, is the, are, are there mysteries in the world and there are mysteries in the beyond that are beyond our comprehension and our forms of reality, are they limited just a tad? Of course. I mean, you know, we, if we're going to, you know, we have to embrace the notion, if you're going to embrace any of this, you have to embrace the notion that you don't know anything, really, when it comes down to it. And all of that we talk about when we talk about this stuff is really, we're, we're in... You know, it's like what what uh, what Hamlet called the undiscovered country, right? Um, that this is not. That when, I mean, no one has ever really completely died and come back, um, except for one person, right? And so, um, using 
kind of using Jesus as a, as a way of sort of understanding. And we say this when we do the Apostles' Creed. We say that Jesus uh, descended to the dead. Now, you've got to understand the, you know, the, the, the ideas that are behind all of these ancient creeds. When they say descended to the dead, I mean, their beliefs were that hell was somewhere down there. You know, I mean, in the ancient Jewish belief, there there was actually even. I remember being taught this when I was in uh, my fundamentalist my fundamentalist days, um, that that the center of the earth was sort of divided, right? And then there was uh, Sheol, and then there was paradise, right? So this is like at the center of the earth, okay? According to this ancient Jewish sort of understanding, so. Um, there were people in Sheol, and there were people in Paradise. So then when Jesus is telling the story of the rich man Lazarus, you know, he talks about how Lazarus is in Sheol, and, uh, you know, he's being refined. So it's hot, right? Um, and he looks over in Paradise, and he sees that uh, the Lazarus is at the bosom of Abraham, right? Because this is, this is where the bosom of Abraham would be. So if you're a good Jew and you die... Uh, you go, then you go to the bosom of Abraham. If you did not um, measure up, then you go to Sheol. At some point in time, you might make it over to paradise um, if you were refined enough, right? So uh, this is so when we talk about descending to the dead. I mean, you know, this is the language of medieval times, the language of you know, even farther back, ancient times. You know, talking about dissension. Um, you know, so when Jesus descends to the dead, of course, then the, you know, there's. There's the idea of being buried and all that and so forth. So, so I mean, that was their, their understanding in terms of their language. But the, this is the key phrase because this is how we've sanitized it from the original Apostles' Creed, uh, which said he descended into hell. <laughs> and we get this from uh, Peter, right? So I believe it's the first Peter where he talks about how Jesus went and preached uh, to those who were... Um, in Hades or Sheol or whatever, and whatever phrase, whatever word they're going to do, and and sort of the idea was that they gave them the, then the opportunity uh, to hear the gospel um, and respond to it. So again, this is where uh, the the particularists and universalists sort of uh, also divide, uh, because remember we talked about how there's a continuum in terms of Christianity. Now, you can still be Christian, you can still be uh, somewhat orthodox uh, by saying that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is risen, and so forth, um, and then believe that, that, that God saves all, and then some people can believe that God saves some, and they can still be Christian. Both can still be Christian, um, even though they have different beliefs, and they can kind of trace that back to an orthodox belief that, that sort of Christians hold on to, which is Jesus saves, right? So, so that's... That's the notion right here, right, that Jesus saves. And this idea of descending into hell. Um, so uh, Jesus saves who, right? So if Jesus goes and descends into hell, like Peter is talking about how he goes and preaches to those who've never heard, um, and so then they have a chance to respond. So some people might actually say, well, he did go and he did preach to those who had never heard and who were outside of the grace of God and gave them the opportunity to experience the grace of God and then the, some of them did and some of them probably didn't. It doesn't say that in the text. It just says that he preached, right? 
Um, so some people believe that, well, when Jesus saves, then all those people um, that heard, uh, they're now included, right? Some people say, um, well, only some of them heard and, 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 and did it. And then some, and the vast majority of Christians don't care, right? Because this is too messed up to think about, Right? So what we did was we took the Apostles' Creed and we took out that and we made it really nice because now we just talk about Jesus being dead. But that's not what it meant. It was more radical than that. Karl Barth, probably one of the most uh, famous uh, Reformed theologians, once said, there is a hell and it is empty. Right? Because of that. Now whatever you believe, um, and again, here's the thing, we, you could be Christian and still hold on to those two things, and that's okay, right? You know, you don't have to condemn somebody who believes that only certain people get saved because they prayed a prayer or whatever, or they accepted Christ. And there, there's lots of Christians, probably the vast majority of Christians believe that. Okay, so, so you don't have to ridicule somebody for believing that, um, because they're holding on to this notion um, that Jesus saves, which is a true thing, right? And the same way, uh, somebody else can't, you know, the people that sort of believe that it's particular uh, really and truly can't ridicule somebody who believes that everybody gets saved because they're still holding on to the same notion that Jesus saves. Does this make sense? I know that it's hard because if they disagree with you, you don't want to be in fellowship with them, right? But you can't. <laughs> it's okay because they still believe the same thing essentially that you do. They're, it's just now you're just talking semantics, right? Um, now you're just talking numbers as opposed to the concept. Um, and so this was, this is really at the heart of the concept, is that there, you know, why would God let a little thing like death get in the way of sharing the gospel um, with those who had never really heard it before, right? So, um, so this idea of what happens to us when we die, it's so up in the air, and Jesus had, you know, his ways of explaining it, and John is sort of doing it here. The best the probably best thing that we can think about is this. There's a verse in Hebrews, I believe, it says to be absent with the, from the body is to be present with the Lord. That right there is the best possible answer that you can make, right? And, and it, is it complete? Does it answer your questions? No, right? But uh, N.T. Wright says it like this, that um, when your hardware breaks down, God takes your software and uploads it into his hardware until you have new hardware. <laughs> there you go. That's a good engineer, software engineer way of describing it, right? But that's essentially what, this is what John is trying to say. These people are at rest. They are, they are in the presence of the Lord. They are at rest. They still don't completely understand everything, and that's okay. I mean, you know, so here's the thing, okay, if people are, if, if, if to be absent with the body, to be present with the Lord, if you are dead, and then, you know, whatever, whatever your software is, right, um, then goes and is uploaded into God's, God's heart, which was infinitely better than ours, right, so you're now one with God, you are with God, you are in God's presence, wherever that is, and where is God's presence exactly, <laughs> so why is it that people poo-poo the notion that um, someone could experience the presence of their loved one either by 
sight or by feeling, energy, whatever. Because if God is all around you, and God is in us and through us, and God is the ground of all of our being, right? Then someone who is in God's presence and with God would also, at some level, right, be in that same capacity. But, again, what we see that John is doing is he's saying, but they're not quite at God's level, right? They still sort of see things in Kronos time. They're not quite able to experience the fullness of this. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I would say to people who are grieving that um, if you feel the presence of your loved one, it's probably because you are feeling the presence of your loved one, right? I did a whole sermon series on this a long time ago, um, and I'm not going to preach the whole sermon series, but this gives you a little bit of an idea of what John is doing here. He's trying to help us understand as Christians, and especially for those of us, let's say we're all first century Christians, he's trying to help us understand like, there's something on the other side of this. You don't have to be afraid of this. Like, all that stuff that happened, the four horsemen, you're good. Right? Um, does that make sense? Right, that was a big rabbit trail, but I thought maybe an important one. I don't know. Um, okay, any, any other thoughts on the, those slain under the altar? Okay, now things get ugly. <laughs> <laughs> as if they already didn't, right? <laughs> I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed uh, from its place. Right, so we're starting to see this. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, and the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Okay, so we've seen... We've seen uh, the four horsemen, right? So we've got the horsemen that represented sort of the outside threats, um, the Parthians, those people, that, the, the threats that are always out there, right? The, the, then there's war, then there's famine and economic ruin, and then there's death um, that's sort of brought on by all of the things that are sort of man-made, right? I mean, we could, all, we could argue that that is all man-made stuff, that death follows all of the man-made junk, Um, Because with outside threats comes war, with war comes economic ruin, with economic ruin comes disease and death, right? So all that's man-made. There's a little bit of a break from the seals when we start to see the the people who are there, right? There's just this little bit of a break. But then now we're back at it. And now this time, the destruction, where is it coming from? The universe. Yes. Okay, so the first four seals, this, this is all like human origin, right? This is all about humanity. Okay, the sixth and this seal has to do with creation. 
right? So what John is saying here is that, you know, even creation is now turning on itself and on people. Right, so changes in the sky, earthquakes, moon to blood, stars falling. I mean, these are cosmic signs that are all linked to the end of human history. Um, cue the REM song, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I am not feeling fine, right? I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all about to end. Right, that's, that's the kind of idea. All right, so let's think about... Um, so um, the, the volcano of Fuego that just exploded and just erupted in Guatemala. Okay, um, I mean, when I was there, um, you know, you could see the smoke. It just kept. It was just it was constant, right? It's just a constant plume of smoke that's always there. Um, the the threat of it is just always, you know, it's, it's just gonna blow up. And I remember thinking to myself as I'm standing in Antigua, kind of looking out and you know over some of those those hills and looking at those volcanoes. And I'm looking at all those houses that are built like up on that. And, you know, I'm like, man, oh, man. Um, I mean, that thing is active. I mean, you can see it, and they're still building up that close um, out of desperation, out of all kinds of reasons. I don't know, you know. But uh, at any rate, you know, when it blows and the lava starts to flow and it's, and it's, it's erratic now because the, the crater has been deteriorating so badly that there's no way to really predict um, exactly which way it's going to go, and so that's what happened, right? And so there's hundreds of people that are that are missing still. Um, so let's think about this though. Um, in our own time, right? We've had, and I remember when I was I was young uh, when Mount St. Helens happened, and I mean there were signs, there was always kind of signs on that, but man, that caught a lot of people by surprise. Y'all remember that pretty vividly, I imagine. I lived in Colorado at the time, but we got ash in Colorado. Um, from that. But let's think about the first century context. What would have been sort of like in their minds, right, when they start thinking about natural disasters? I mean, earthquakes were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. So if you ever get a chance to go to Israel with me, um, that's one of the things the guide will, set, will tell you. So this was a city up until such and such and such and such, and then an earthquake happened <laughs> and destroyed everything, and then they rebuilt it, and then another earthquake happened. You know, it's like that, like the Holy Grail. You know, that I built a castle and it sunk into the swamp, and then I built another one and it burned and fell and sunk into the swamp. But the you know, the last castle, you know. It's the, so anyway, the um, I know my movie references are really good. So. What would, you, what would you think would be in the forefront of people's mind in this kind of culture? Okay. Anybody ever been to Pompeii? Yeah. Pretty crazy, right? And they just found another skeleton. Um, like a full-on skeleton of, uh, of a dude um, that was trying to run and like a huge block fell on his head. Um, and so they, they, they got, they, they're able to do a better job now than they used to. I guess back in the day when they were doing all this, they, they could just pour the bones and stuff. But this was like full-on like the thing, you know? So it was really amazing. So, uh, but Vesuvius happens and takes out... Uh, not just Pompeii, but like other cities as well, right? 
Um, Herculaneum did, uh, is the other one. Did John get a lot of this from Christ's <coughs> talk about the end of times and that? Yes. So what? So this is a this is what you would call in the literary con, a literary criticism as a trope. Okay, the the moon turning to blood. Uh, you know, I mean, and I mean seriously, when when there's a blood moon. Right or when the do you know what I mean when that that kind of stuff happens I mean it is kind of spooky uh, now a lot of it happens with us because of pollution but I think when that happens right I mean it's it's pretty bizarre looking um, so those kinds of things would, would have really been in people's minds you know the idea of that happening um, but this is a this is a trope that is used throughout Jewish uh, uh, apocalyptic and prophetic literature. And then Jesus actually has a, an, uh, an apocalyptic sort of uh, sermon where he talks about that in Matthew. Go back in the fire and brimstone days. And youth. <coughs> they used to, the preachers used to just scare me to death. Yeah. Oh, I would even go around a fig tree. They used to be falling off a fig tree and uh, I was done, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, when you think about their, their imagery, it's so bereft of any kind of scientific knowledge. I mean, it's, it's completely based on superstition. But yet, um, the concept, right, the concept behind it is the most important thing. You, you know, you can get lost in the weeds. I think a lot of times that's what people do. They want to discount the Bible. They go, yeah, but they were, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, stars falling from the sky. Like, you know, I mean, well, have you ever seen a fallen star? I mean, it's disconcerting, right? Or a shooting star, whatever. You know, I mean, you you know, it's, it, it, if you're these are ancient people, right? They're trying to understand the universe. They don't they don't have the Hubble freaking telescope. I mean, you know, they they're trying to figure things out, and the best way that they can talk about it, right? And then is but the idea behind what Jesus was saying is the same thing that nature is is there's the worm's going to turn, man, and it does. Nature happens. Earthquakes happen. Floods happen. This stuff happens. Volcanoes happen. Um, so, but what John is saying theologically here is that in this, you know, like you, you cannot control this stuff, right? And he's using the terms of like the end times, which they would have been, which Jesus himself used. Um, and so a lot of people say, well, Jesus said it. Well, Jesus also talked about Hades when he gave the parable, um, you know, to of the, the rich man of Lazarus that we just talked about. So he used a Greek term. Um, and he used their own understanding of what happens to you when you die so that he could make a point. So he used a lot of the same stuff. He used because he was trying to reach people on their level, and so you know um, when he talks about the end times, when he talks about that, he's using the language that is going to fire them up, that's going to give them that sort of trembling within their soul. You know, he was definitely trying to he was definitely trying to put some fear of God into them. That you know, there's going to come a day um, when this is going to pass away, and then there will be something new. But that there's a passing that has to happen first, right? Did you get the Matthew passage? Did you have it or did you? Yeah. Do you want to read it real quick just so that well, people it's can? pretty long. Well, just read the part about the. 
remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it says, at, the, at that time, the sign of the Son of God, of man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. I don't know why that just, I had nightmares about that fig tree. <laughs> as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heavens and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Yeah, there's there's a really good, there's a lot of really good scholarship that, um, that connects because Matthew specifically is written to like the Jewish sort of um, Jewish audience, you know, more so than than Paul's letters, which are written to largely Gentile audiences, some Jews, but but largely Gentile. So um, there's a lot of really good scholarship that places Jesus uh, doing saying those kinds of things, anticipating uh, the fall of Jerusalem. And sort of that being that that day, um, and I mean, so I mean, again, you know, you can argue a lot of things, but I kind of like that a little bit because I feel like that in a lot of ways that Jesus was continually telling these people, you need to stop thinking about revolution in the same way that you've always been thinking about, you know, the old, the idea of turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving someone your cloak, cloak off your back. Those were all shaming things. Um, that would shame someone who was oppressing you. You know, the Roman soldiers could conscript people to carry, like if they came into a town, they could just grab somebody um, and make them carry stuff for a certain amount of time. I mean, look what happened to Simon the Siren, right? They grabbed him and said, carry this man's cross, and so he had to carry it, right? So that kind of stuff would happen. They, they could legally, right, because even the Romans had laws, they could legally only uh, carry it for like a mile or so. Uh, and then Jesus said, well, carry it two miles. Just go, no, I got this. It's okay. It's okay, Roman soldier. I'm going to carry this another mile for you. And the guy is now thinking to himself, I am, you know, I got to get this back. I'm going to be in trouble. You know, like, I, you know, like, and he's like, no, 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 allow me to carry your, you know, Jesus is doing radical stuff. Uh, turn the other cheek. You know, the, the way that he talks about it is if somebody slaps you with their left hand, right, a hand of scorn, um, right then, you turn your other cheeks so that they. Well, no, if they strike you with your right hand, that's how it is. If they strike you with the right hand, then you turn so that if they hit you again, they have to hit you with their left hand. You know um, that kind of thing. So it's like really like subversive stuff that he was teaching and preaching, trying to get these people to stop, stop on their pathway to destruction, which was a, a collision course with the Romans. Um, so there's a lot of scholarship that is that places Jesus doing that. He weeps over Jerusalem. You know, he, um, you know, he's, it's like he knows that it's coming. Like these, all these rival people. And sure enough, 40 years later, right, that's what happened. Um, they, they, they fought with each other, and then they ended up fighting with the Romans, and the Romans were like, you know, finally, okay. Remember the Pax Romana? You didn't keep your end of the bargain. Now we're going to come and destroy you. And they did. So, um... So anyway, I kind of getting back to this. In our own space, it might seem kind of useless or pointless to resist when we're suffering at the hands of opponents, okay? But when we start to see that there's something going on, right, there's a cosmic struggle that's taking place, 
um, that all of a sudden the things, our little part of that seems like more important, you know? Um, so he's saying to them, like, there's things happening that are bigger than you. This is much bigger than you. But you have a role in this, right? You, there's something that you can do. And so that's what leads us to, to this next thing. So if we go to seven, Romans, uh, Revelation 7, um, the 144,000. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. Okay, so he's carrying like the, like the presidential seal, the seal of the king, the seal of the living God. <clears throat> Uh, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until he put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Okay, so this is where it starts to get really significant, right? The numbers, like all of a sudden there's a number where are all these numbers coming from. Plus there's something else going on, right? So there's all this stuff happening in the universe. There's all this stuff happening. And then all of a sudden you realize that what was, what's causing some of that to happen are these, these angels, right? So there's an angel like at the, four, at the four corners of the earth, okay? So, I mean, you know, I mean, this is, again, we're dealing with their understanding, okay? Um, but there's this idea then that there's something bigger happening. There's a bigger thing going on. Um, and... You know, now you're part of it. So these angels are coming. There's a cosmic struggle. This happens throughout uh, the Bible. Um, in the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua is about to go to battle, and he's he's he comes up, and there's a there's a guy like standing, you know, in, in like the road, and he's armed. And so Joshua says to this guy, "Are you for us or are you against us?" And he says. Neither. <laughs> he is the, the captain of the Lord's army, right? And there's, there's, a, there's a bigger battle at play here, right? There's an idea that there's, that there's something going on. Now, Greeks and Romans had that same kind of concept. Um, if you think about the, the, um, um, the, Trojan, the, the stories of the Trojan Wars, you know, there's the wars themselves that are being fought with... Uh, you know, there's people like um, Hector and Achilles, right? These, these two, the two uh, tr- you know, champions, right? So this was the uh, Hector for the Trojans, I believe, and uh, Achilles for um, uh, the Greeks, right? And so then there's a, there's a, it all. You know, it all kind of piles up, right? So there's all these different, but then, right, right? There's there's also gods and goddesses, right? So you know, like Athena, I think was on the side of the Trojans, perhaps, and you know, uh, uh, then uh, I'm using the Roman names now. Hera, uh, I can't remember her Greek name. So she's like the, the wife of Zeus who got upset. Uh, because they they said that this woman in Troy was like the most beautiful woman you know, ever, blah, blah, blah. So, so what you see is like a mirroring, right? There's a mirroring of what's going on in, the, in Olympus and then what's going on uh, down on Earth. And that's how the Greeks saw it, right? That there's, there's cosmic battles and cosmic struggles that have implications on Earth. Um, 
And so it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon. Um, but at any rate, uh, now we're getting to something, right? There's 144,000. So where does he get them? He goes through all the tribes, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, uh, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, um, uh, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now at this point, um, there are only really two tribes that are left at this point in history, right? Um, that there are ten tribes that are kind of lost. Uh, they were lost in, when the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, when they, when they separated, right? The southern kingdom was Judah uh, and uh, Benjamin. And uh, then the northern kingdoms were all the rest. So it was like ten tribes went uh, north, essentially. Uh, so the way that Israel kind of looks, uh, so you've got this is my horrible map. Don't be painting. <laughs> All right, so you've got the Jordan River, and then you've got the Dead Sea. Right? So you've got like uh, all of the cities around Galilee, and then um, yeah, you got the mountains, there's mountains and mountains, and then you know, over in here you've got like Jerusalem, uh, sort of up in the mountains. Alright, so um, so this was this was the southern part of the kingdom here, so this was Judah. And then the northern part was up here. And so they, they took, um, you know, like basically took all of this area up in the, up in the north. I mean, it's beautiful up there. Uh, so it's no wonder they took it. It's like, it's like cool. It's like, a, it's like North Carolina. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It's just a little small area uh, with huge river, and, you know, lots of rivers. Now, of course, the rivers are a lot smaller because the Israelis are piping stuff up <laughs> like mad. Um, but at any rate... Um, so the lost tribes came from here, and they were gone, right? The Assyrians came and, and, and took them all and dispersed them and killed them, blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't until much later that, uh, that Jerusalem fell and then it was taken by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians uh, took them into captivity, and they were able to retain their identity and then were able to return them to the Persians because the Persians had a different way of dealing with, empi- with their empire. Um, Babylonians wanted to bring everybody to them and strengthen them, the best and brightest and so forth. And we're gonna, I'll be preaching on Daniel in like four weeks or something like that, so you can hear a little bit more about that. But um, the Persians were like, hey, uh, the best way to strengthen your empire is to send, is to have people all over the place that are loyal to you, right? And so what better way to make them loyal than to send them back and give them money and help them rebuild their stuff and, and kind of strengthen them and their context, so they were able to go back. Uh, so what does this mean? Well, the author intentionally is connecting this to the traditional Jewish material here. You know, this idea of the mythical lost tribes of Israel being restored, that was something that was a dream of, uh, of, the, of ancient Israel. So what does, that, what does that kind of represent? So what, what would you think that would represent that John is trying to do here? Don't think too hard. Right, so what, what is John trying to say by saying this 144,000? Like, there's, I mean, the numbers are pretty specific, right? It's not like there was 12,346 in Zebulun and 11,500. There are 12,000, period, every single one, right? So, and then it all adds up to 144,000. 12 times 12 is 144,000. Right, so, what, are, what is the significance here? What, what? It's called a perfect number, but it's really, okay. it's really not. 
Okay. And math, the perfect numbers, uh, and the sum of a number's factors is equal to that number, like six is a perfect number. Okay. One plus two plus three is six. The 12, I don't know. I don't know what 12 is, but it's in the Bible. It's it is. So in the, in the, in the scripture, um, it's, it's considered like a, a perfect number, right? Now, I mean, we don't have to think too hard to, to understand why that's the case. Why would that be the case? Twelve tribes. Twelve tribes, right? So, um, when Jesus, okay, when Jesus picks twelve disciples, right? So there's twelve disciples, right? So Jesus picks twelve disciples. We have these twelve tribes, right? And Jesus did a lot of things, like you know, when he, when he first. When he was first baptized, he was baptized in the Jordan River down in the southern parts of the Jordan River out in the middle of the wilderness where John was baptizing. John was baptizing at the very spot where the Israelites originally crossed over from uh, the wilderness into the land of Canaan, right? And that was their crossing point. Um, and so John specifically went to that site in order to baptize. And lo and behold, Jesus shows up, right, with his 12 disciples, you know, I mean, or, and that's, that's a, you know, there, there's, there's stuff going on, right, that Jesus is intentionally being provocative in the things that he does um, so that he's, he's showing the Jewish people in their own context that God is doing a new thing. There's something going on that's new. There's something that the restoration that they were seeking, the thing, is they wanted to have the, the, um, the 12 tribes restored, Right? And once the 12 tribes were restored, then everything would be great. We would finally be unified. We would be complete. Okay? So what Jesus did here was he completed it. Right? He demonstrates the completeness of it. Which is why it was so important when one of them dies, right? When Judas hangs himself, that they went and they, was, they did it. They made sure they went and got another one. <laughs> right? So, um... So anyway, there's a completeness, a wholeness to it. Uh, and so what John is doing is he's playing on um, these traditional Jewish material to signify a wholeness or a completeness. Um, but then, okay, now here's the interesting part. After, so you've got this like small group of 144,000. But then he goes... After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing what kind of robes? White robes and holding palm branches in their hands. All right? So the symbol of the palm uh, is not lost on us at this point because of Palm Sunday, but also because it's a sign of victory, right? Um, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor the power and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Uh, let's see if we have, a, if we have that. How did you have a low battery when I got you plugged in? Sneakies. Did it switch on? 
Okay, so we've got so here's our here's our angels, right? There's, this is one that shows them with, with trumpets, which we're going to have in a little while. Um, maybe I haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah, we haven't gotten to that one yet. There's a horrible, there's a there's our meteor that comes in a little while. All right, so I'll hold I'll hold on to this. This is the horrible stuff here. We'll we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hold on to that. Okay, so. Um, so when John turns and sees the multitude, he sees that it's not from just the Hebrew people, from every tribe and every nation and every people. Okay, so the waving of palm branches, um, this goes back to, uh, there's a festival they have called the Festival of the Booths. So Booths, yes. And that was tied to the, the Maccabean revolt. And I've gone, for those of you in my Romans class, we've gone ad nauseum about the Maccabeans. Um, but uh, and I've even done this in, in church a couple of times in the worship service. So the Maccabeans uh, revolted against the Greeks, um, who were kind of based in, in Damascus, and uh, Judas Maccabeus uh, was the, the leader of that. And so when uh, he cleansed the temple, because uh, the the king, uh, the Syrio-Grecian king, had uh, um, had polluted the temple right on purpose had made it, had turned it into um, a, a temple, you know, like any other Greek temple. Uh, because uh, he didn't want, he didn't, he wanted to eradicate Judaism. He wanted everybody to be in Greek culture, believing Greek stuff, being on board with, with Greek uh, thought and religion and everything else. And so the, it's interesting, the books, the book of Daniel and the book of Esther were all kind of written in that same context, you know, uh, people who are resisting uh, the oppression, you know, of those who are, who are basically making it illegal to be Jewish. Isn't that, I mean, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? To make somebody, elite, make it illegal to be Jewish. I mean, it's been, some people have been trying it for years, right? So they did it in, uh, in this particular time period, the Maccabeans revolted. Um, and so during the parades and during the stuff that happened after that, people were waving palm branches um, and uh, kind of stole it from the, you know, the kind of surrounding culture around them. Um, okay. Any, any questions about that at all before we kind of move on to the, um, the rest of it? Okay. So these people are sealed, Right. Uh, let me go back and just take a look. Okay, these people are sealed. Um, so they're, they're marked with a seal that um, is from the Hebrew word, the tan, uh, tan, which essentially looks kind of like a cross. Yeah, it looks like a T. But, you know, so, so this is a seal. I mean, coincidence? No. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know I mean, so he's, he's basically making them sealed with the cross. This stands in contrast with the mark of the beast um, that happens a little bit later, right? So the differences between these people. Um, and so then the, there's an interesting thing that happens in this. He says, uh, okay, then one of the elders, right? So so this is the, the narrator is, is standing there, right? Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? <laughs> and but he knows the answer right so it's just like a weird little thing that john does here it's like there's this dialogue going on 
So the elder goes, so where did these people come from? Where, where, do you, where do you think they came from? And he's like, you know. You know where they came from. And then he answers, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is beautiful and amazing. And people have screwed this up so bad. Because they got focused on one word. What do you think the word is that people get focused on in that passage that leads them down the primrose path to idiocy? (laughs) What's the word? Tribulation. We're going to talk a lot about this going forward as we talk, as we get into dispensationalism and stuff and kind of dig through that, okay? But um, this essentially means that they have been through all of the stuff that you just saw, right? All of that stuff, all of the wars, all of the pestilence, all of the, I mean, that's what they went through. And now they are with God, right? And not just with God, but they have all of the rights and privileges of people who have been martyred, right? So um, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of them. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and served day and night simple. And he is sitting on the throne. Okay, and I just love this. So there's there's no there's no hunger, there's no there's no poverty, there's no thirst, there's no you know, all of those things that happened because of the four horsemen, all the things that happened because of the cosmic sort of stuff, the sun will not beat down on them or any scorching heat. Um, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, so this um, does not mean what the, the, the dispensationalists and what, the, what Schofield and all those guys from the 1800s, and they were trying to figure out you know, the idea of rapture and the idea of this and that and the other thing. What this meant is it refers directly back to everything that John said happened from the time that the first seal began to be opened until this one, right? That's what he's talking about. By great tribulation, it means, I mean, that's life, right? It's life in this world. And, and there is far as the eye can see, right, there's more that can be counted. So if you're sitting there again, right, you're hearing this. So, I mean, just think through me, right, because it, it gets really, really crazy sometimes when you're reading these because you're like, good Lord, look at all this crazy stuff that's happening, horrible signs and symbols and blah, 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 blah. All right, so you've got four seals, and then reassurance, Right? People that were there, this was the fifth seal. Mm-hmm. All right? Then you have uh, the sixth seal, which is awful. <laughs> and then you have reassurance.
All right, this is his pattern. That he's, he's, it, it doesn't, it's like, I mean, the beautiful part about this is he's like, you know, just when you feel like it's all over, there's peace. There's a reassurance that it's okay. Just when you feel like it's going to, the world is going to come to an end, there's reassurance that you're going to be all right. Um, and then there's another seal that gets opened, which we're going to talk about in a second. Do you have any questions about that? How crazy is this, isn't it? Isn't it fun? <laughs> All right, so um, let's open the seventh seal. We've been waiting long enough to until we. It's like it's like watching a Netflix show that you can't like. You're like you're binging. You get to the end of one, you're like, oh, it's like ten o'clock. I can totally watch another one, right? Okay, so. Um, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. So, um, the Sibylline Oracle, which is a famous oracle of the day, um, they taught... You guys know what I mean by oracle, right? So the oracles would be places where you would go and you would get uh, you know, predictions about what was to come. These were people that just spent their whole lives like in contemplation and um, worship and sort of thinking about, you know, whatever. And many of them uh, had allegedly had like gifts uh, of sight to be able to see into the future, you know, and there was rituals and so forth and so on. So there was a, it was a general practice that, you know, if you were, if you wanted to find out something difficult, you know, and a lot of, a lot of rulers would consult oracles before they made decisions. Um, so it just goes to show you the world, you know, I mean, it, I mean, the world hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, we don't, we don't consult oracles, but we do, you know, we do want to know stat, you know, s- statistics and, you know, we try to predict the future. You know, we, I mean, it's you, know, you try to break it down and be as safe as possible, right? When you're investing or when you're getting ready to do something. But you know, it's just like in Jurassic Park, chaos, man. <laughs> chaos always happens, right? The the thing that you weren't expecting, All right? So, um, the Sibylline Oracle revealed that it was a natural procedure when one was offering a sacrifice to have silence beforehand, and this was also um, thought to be a moment. Uh, when God was listening to the prayers of the saints. I mean, so this was some, sometimes people interpreted it that way. The reason why I'm throwing in the Greek stuff, and the reason why I'm, I'm throwing this in here, is because John is pulling from all these images and kind of cobbling it together so that this diverse group of people can have access to what he's trying to say. Um, there, is a, there is a liturgy. It's called the Mithras Liturgy um, that has to do with silence which basically connects to the idea that only in silence are we able to really fully um, experience the voice of God or the presence of God, right? So um, this, this kind of thing is connected to uh, what story from the Old Testament that had to do with a crazy prophet who wore crazy clothes and came out of nowhere and 
which and he 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 uh, he had a duel with some prophets at one point. You guys know what I'm talking about? Which, Elijah, right? So Elijah, like the famous Elijah, right? So um, Elijah, uh, he goes to, uh, when, he, when he runs away after he's been threatened by Jezebel, um, and she says, I'm going you know, to kill you. I'm going to kill you dead, Elijah, you and all your kin. And then um, and Elijah flees, right? So he flees, and he, he tries to get away as far as he possibly can. And he goes to a mountain. So which mountain did he go to? Think of think of famous mountains in the in the Old Testament. <laughs> so he goes. He finds himself all the way down, almost to Egypt, and uh, you know, down this in the middle of, middle of nowhere, right, to Mount Sinai. So he goes to Mount Sinai, and he's there, and then there's an earthquake, and then there's, you know, like, wind and all that stuff, and God is not in any of that. But what is God in, right? And it's not a, not a still, small voice. The Hebrew is... Sound of sheer silence. <clears throat> That's when he emerges and covers himself up, right? Because it wasn't in all the other things that he really and truly. So, I mean, that, that's a huge theological statement. That whole story, um, because that, and that connects to this. You know, silence is called the symbol of the living God, um, and silence was imposed while priests burned incense prior to sacrifice. I mean, there's all this stuff that's connected to silence. I mean, we have a moment of a moment of silence in our worship services um, where we confess our sins for less than a minute. Um, imagine if we just said, "Okay, for the next half hour, we're just going to have silence," you know, because they do that in heaven right here. So we need to do that here. So, thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs> you know, what if I what if I just read that passage and then I just went and sat down and I just had a timer. And we just sat there. That would be kind of cool. It'd be, I'd be, that would be, don't tell anybody, because I may do that one day when I really don't have a sermon to preach. I'll just, like if I had a late night or something, or, you know, I'm just like, man, I'm just not feeling it today. I'm going to totally read from Revelation. You guys have to be in on this, right? So, yeah, but that, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of what's going on, right? That there's, so, so what would you think, right, um, is happening at that point, okay. All right, there's reassurance. All right, so we've got reassurance, right? And after the reassurance, there is there is. Uh, there's God, there's like the presence of God, right? So you've got this sort of pattern here where there's, you know, there, there are things that happen and it's, it cycles into uh, hope, more stuff that cycles into hope. And then on the other side of that, you have, you have God's presence, right? The silence and so forth. <clears throat> 
Okay, so when we start digging into the next thing, so because you're right, <laughs> like, it's like after the half hour, I'm going to be really surprised. We got a we got a half hour break, and then now there was a seventh. So there then there, after this, there were seven angels. All right, so again, we're, the numbers are really significant. Seven angels stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Here's our seven trumpets. Um. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Why do you think that in some traditions there's the smells and the bells, right? So we talk, we talk about smells and bells. Um, you know, so Episcopal, Anglican, Catholic tradition, to some extent I think maybe in Lutheran tradition there's also a little bit of smells and bells. Um, and, and what I mean by bells is... Um, in, a, in some in some Catholic churches, and maybe even in a, I'm not sure if it's Episcopal or, or not, but maybe really high, high, high church Episcopal. But um, and this is not in every Catholic church, mind you. And I've been to one. It's kind of, it was kind of funny when I went to one that did it. But during when the mass is said, there's a point when there's a bell that's rung, mm-hmm. right? And that point was when you know that the host is now the body and blood of Christ, right? So it's the body of Christ. And, and that was done, that's a medieval thing. I mean, that was done so that, the, that these people who were never, they couldn't understand a word of Latin, uh, that were all the way in the very back. Did you guys see the royal wedding? Yes. Okay. Do you, know you know the altar and where the choir is? And then there was that screen, and then where, like, all the other people were sitting, right? Mm-hmm. So if you weren't a good enough friend or, I mean, I don't think George, did George Clooney? No, George Clooney had to sit back there. <laughs> I mean, if George Clooney is sitting behind the screen, like that's, you got to be so pretty important, right? So at any rate, um, the people in the choir were closest to see what was really going on. But then there's screens and then you got the unwashed masses that are in the back of the, that are not allowed into the thing, right? So the bell would ring so they would know, okay, you know, that, that now that's the moment um, because I can't understand Latin. I can't see Boom, you know, uh, but the the, pra- the prayers um, that is that comes directly out of Re- Revelation, directly out of Revelation. Um, the idea of prayers, you know, so when you're walking in, um, and there's something beautiful about that. I mean, I'm not I'm not you know hastening to bust out you know the incense stuff as we walk in. Britt and I walk in and swing the dang thing. We don't have wide enough aisles. I probably clock somebody. But there is something beautiful about that to me because every time that I see that happening and I and you feel your nose is filled with the incense. I mean it just it, it always takes me back to this moment in Revelation. Uh, where the angel is doing that, right? He had much incense to offer. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, (laughs) and hurled it on the earth. What? Come on, man. That's not fair. (laughs) Right? Um... And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes, lightning, and an earthquake. And then here we go. Then the trumpets. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Sounds like a Texas summer. (laughs) 
The, so, <laughs> the second angel sounded his trumpet, trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze. Okay, this is actually this right here. Okay, something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships uh, were destroyed. Okay, um, but let's let's hold on before we go any further. So. Trumpets um, are what? What is what are trumpets usually kind of used at within these particular contexts, like the first century context? To announce, to announce something, warning. um, warnings uh, used in, in war as well. You know, to um, the first four trumpets form a unit. Um, these first four, they're destruction from above, um, and then the fifth. Uh, trumpet, as we're going to see, is destruction from below, which we're going it, to, it's pretty horrible. Then this, <laughs> this is all really horrible. The sixth trumpet brings war, death, and destruction from a great army. The last trumpets are attacks on humanity, right? So um, in the book of Sirach, okay, this is the first or fourth trumpets. We just got through those. So the book of Sirach, um, which is not part of our, our Protestant Bible, uh, but, but I believe it is part of the, the Catholic Bible. Um, fire, hail, pestilence, all those were created for vengeance and are a prelude to an imminent revelation. Um, so that, you know, those are kind of used in that context. Um, and so these harbingers of doom, all this stuff, was also connected in the, the contemporary literature of the day um, to sort of connect to this idea of the return of Nero. Um, so remember I talked about how people were afraid of Nero and like he was like, that guy was like so horrible and then there was rumors that he didn't die or that he was going to come back. And I mean, you know, and, and the thing is that um, that kind of thing was went on a lot um, all the way up in, um, through, uh, you know, like the, the, the 1500s, in 1600s, um, when a, you know, like a, ki- uh, a king would come to the throne, and then there would be somebody who would have a claim to the throne that would claim to be the son of such and such and so and so. And and so, there's no way to. to I mean, how do you verify this stuff, right? I mean, you don't know because you don't have DNA. You don't have. You know, I mean, you know, all that kind of. So I mean, there were all these kind of threats of like, when is the next usurper? When's the next person going to come back? And then some of those people actually. Uh, like in the case of when you get farther in, in the case of Napoleon, uh, then become a scourge like to the rest of Europe, um, and and even the French uh, don't uh, seem to to acknowledge Napoleon all that much. I mean, they're like kind of you know it's like um, that's what French people do, right? You know, uh, to Napoleon. Um, so we were at, we were in Corsica, which is um, um, you know. He was from Corsica, and they have they do have some statues and they do have some things for Corsica. But even the Corsica, so the she was explaining to us that the Corsicans claim him, the true Corsicans, and she was one of those. That they're like you know, but then like the French people who live on Corsica think he's a you know think he's a bum you know. So <laughs> um, so there's still even to this day like right Napoleon looms large in these people's minds as some sort of you know horrible person right so. Um, this idea that, you know, that the coming of Nero, the return of Nero was going to be, you know, brought about by all these horrible things that were going to happen. That was part of, uh, of their culture as well. 
right, so he's, he's playing on that. Okay, the third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star. Um, whoops. Oh, I don't want to manage that now. Um, I don't know what happened here. But I guess I, oh, my, I died. All right, bummer. Okay, um, so anyway, um, what am I saying? Okay, so, okay. Um, the third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood. Um, Absinthon. Uh, Absinthon, which is referred to by the Roman physician Galen as something that could heal if it was mixed properly with honey and wine. Okay? Um, a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Uh, the fourth angel sounded his trumpet. Uh, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. So the third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. There's a lot of thirds here. Um, so, what would you take away from that? All these thirds. The third of the trees, third of, you know, well, all the green grass, <laughs> which is a bummer. <laughs> a third of the trees, a third of the fish, a third of the woods, a third. Everything, everything is a third. So what is, what's part, what is, part not all? Yes, yeah. right. Kind of, like it's not all of it. Kind of goes back to Noah and the flood. You know, not everything was destroyed. Right. Um, so, I mean, even though all this bad stuff is happening, it's you know, it's still not the end, right? Although it feels like it. Um, and then. Um, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, you got like this meteor, a great star that falls and so forth. I mean, you know, those are things that probably, we know that, Sorry. no, 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 you're good. We know that, that things fall from the sky. <laughs> I mean, it happens. We see the evidence of it, right? Do we think that that, that that never happened at all in the ancient world or they had no concept of whether it had happened or not? Of course they did. Um, you know, so the, the, those kind of things, the ideas of stuff falling um, and um, you know, and like crushing stuff and making impacts and craters and so forth. Those kind of things were, were things that they would have, have totally gotten and understood. Um, okay, so that's all from above, right? Where did we start the last one? Right, we started with humanity, right? And then ended up uh, with creation. Okay, now the trumpets are working backwards, right? Sort of, well, it starts here, I guess. With the, with the seventh seal. So we're working backwards, right? So then you've got, so everything from above is happening. And then now, all of a sudden, now it's from below, right? So it's still talking creation. So when you get to these 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 things, I wish I had had my my I wish my thing hadn't died. It's a bummer because I have a pretty. I'll, I'll show you next week. I have pretty horrible pictures of these things that are coming up. These locusts. Um. So uh, blah 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 blah. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe!" to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. <laughs> um. An eagle was uh, a symbol of Rome, you know. Um, so I don't know what the connection is there, but it probably is, it's probably significant that that the eagle was on all of the Roman symbols of war. You know, where they came in the golden eagle, 
um, which is why Hitler uh, appropriated it for you know like the SS and so forth. They they were they were doing that on purpose. Um, yeah. This, this kind of turns back toward humanity and creation. Is it parallel in the first Exodus from Egypt? And this would be like their final Exodus from the world. Um, I think there's connections to there's connections to the 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 plagues, the, the plagues yeah. definitely, um, and and but and, and there's some cultural things that he's sort of taken apart as well. Because that's the knowledge he had, the history. Right. And every single one of the plagues uh, took on a, an Egyptian deity essentially. So. All of those, all of the plagues was was directly connected, were directly connected to some kind of Egyptian deity, um, like the frog, for example, was an Egyptian deity, and so forth. So, but no it was what's that? No frogs. No frogs this time, but still nature and stuff from above, and you know the, all that. But um, even within the context of the plagues, um, the plagues weren't intended. Uh, to to sort of punish the Egyptians, it was meant to um, you know to, to it was a redemptive kind of thing. You know, it's like showing the the, the power of Yahweh over um, over these gods and so forth. And and in the end, the Egyptians kind of responded to a certain extent. The the every the average Egyptian because they, they they were compelled almost to give them things that they went away like please go you know um, leave us. You know, but even in that case, uh, it's a horrible story. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of violence. But the angel of death that comes and takes the firstborn, um, you know, that too was a, as a was a direct attack against an Egyptian deity. Um, but anyway, um, okay. So the fifth angel sounded a trumpet, and I saw that a star had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, isn't that interesting? He personifies the star. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth. Wait, there's still grass? Um, or, or any plant or tree. But only the, so I mean you get I mean I'm poking fun but you get that this is symbolic I mean he's highly symbolic with his language he's very intentional about all of the things that he's saying. Um, so what do locusts generally do? Eat everything. Eat everything but you, <laughs> right? <laughs> now these locusts, however, they eat you and not everything else, right? Um, they were told not to harm the grass, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. <laughs> and, this, and the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes. Okay. So again, I mean, nature is turning on you. Right? Um, and... You know, this is the kind of thing that he's, you know, he's, so he's differentiating right now between the people who have the seal and, and people who don't. Um, 
So, you know, again, this is giving hope to the people who are hearing it, like as all this stuff is going on. And I know that lots of people say um, that these were helicopters and, you know, there's like, you know what I mean? They're like, they're, they're, they're trying to put things on. No, 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 no. He means what he says. He is, he's, he's flipping the switch that these are locusts that, that hurt people and not, and not things. Um, During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like human hair, women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into the battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months, as we've already discovered. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. Okay, so the bi- All these things are supposed to be happening to... To the entire population or to the portion that hadn't already? Well, in this particular case, he's saying that the people who had the seal are not going to be affected by it. Okay? So let's think about this, right? Just for a moment. So the abyss, okay, so he talks about, so a star falls, and then the star, which is personified, the star obviously is a divine, so he, he's, a, he's a, got this idea of stars as divine beings. Um, the, the star falls, is given the key then to the abyss where the locusts come from, a place of chaos um, where uh, Erebos, um, you know, these the ancient sort of Greek, um, you know, the, uh, all of the, the all the things that you can think of, like the you know the the the, um, um, the sort of creatures, like the the, the two headed dog. What is it? The, how many is it? A two headed dog? It is a two headed dog, right? That guards Hades. Um, and so, you know, there, there's, there's all this sort of, you know, junk that goes with it. Um, it's where Satan and the demons dwell. I mean, that's kind of like all this sort of thought that's going into it. That's kind of what he's putting into it. Um, the ancients believed it was the place where the sun and the moon traveled, at, you know, when it went away. Because they were, they were flat earthers, you know, so they believed that when the sun went away, it was, it was oh, below, right? Sure. So locusts were a direct connection to the prophet Joel, um, only these are jacked up with all kinds of funkiness. <laughs> so, um, locusts, locusts essentially live for five months. So, um, that's the connection to the five months. So, locusts live for five months. I mean, they're, you know, they come, they have a short lifespan, they eat, breed, and then they're done. Right? So, um, they were a harbinger of the day of the Lord because of, of Joel, the prophet Joel um, prophesied there was apparently a, a swarm that, that occurred uh, during his day. Um, and there was like predictions of it and so forth. You know, maybe they had gotten word of the swarm and they began, he began to prophesy, began to do things. Um, but uh, Joel predicts that it's going to come and there's all this talk of that in Joel. And so, you know, that the prophet Joel is what we typically go to uh, for um, Ash Wednesday, um, when when the, there's a repentance that happens and anticipation of this thing that's gonna that's going on, as you know, it's out of their control, um, and they're praying to God that God would intervene. And uh, so, in the prophet Joel, it says, you know, uh, rend your hearts and not your garments. Uh, God says to him, "Return to me, and I'll return to you." That kind of thing. Um, 
Now, the demon in charge of all these creatures is, Ab- is Abaddon, or Polyon, which is really just another name for destruction. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 2.3, Paul indicates that there will come a man of lawlessness who will arrive before the day of the Lord and who will be a son of destruction. So, you know, that's kind of the concept. Um, that, you know, this is, this is just destruction that's coming, you know. Um, so the sixth, we'll get, we'll get through the sixth seal. Um, then in verse 12, it says, the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. <laughs> right? The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Right? So again, you know, the thinking about how the cosmic is connected to the temporal um, with, you know, that, that these things are, there's something bigger going on, right? There's something controlling it. Um, and the four, angels, the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Um, the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I, I heard their number. The, vo- the horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of the lions, and out of their mouth came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood idols that cannot see or hear or talk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. All right, so uh, the sixth trumpet, a massive army, 200 million cavalry soldiers arrive on the scene to do battle. Um, And so bad things happen. All right, so again... We're back to this, right? I keep leaving my pens over there. Now we're back into humanity. So they're about to wage war, but then they get wiped out in like a really dramatic fashion. So there's, you know, you know, sort of this this cosmic thing that's going on again. Um. So what are we thinking now is going to happen next? Okay, so first of all, let's, let's talk about this for a second. The re- so, so again, a third, a third, a third, right? So it's not all, but, but a third. Um, and then the rest, who were not killed by the plagues, still do not repent of the work of their hands. They do not stop worshiping demons, so forth and so on. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, that's because that's they said all of mankind. So are we assuming all of mankind was no law? I mean, I, that's where it lost me. Aren't some of mankind still with Christ, or they're all... Okay, no, the assumption is these are not part of the... That these people are not part of the... That, yeah, this is all kind of... Those that have been sealed, you know, are all set, right? These are the unsealed ones. These are the unsealed people. Unsealed people. Now, again, he's speaking with imagery, right? He's speaking with imagery, and... um, Right, right. So, he, I mean, and, and you're looking at the patterns that he's creating, right? So he's creating these patterns again, going back to that. So the remainder of the people who were left still do not change their minds from what they had been doing. 
They did not stop worshiping demons and idols and so forth. Um, and uh, he uses the sexual immorality as porneia uh, is the word that he uses, which is where we get pornography. Um, so it's something that's, um, you know, that's twisted. It's taken what is good and it's twisted it. So um, who does this sound a little bit like? So you're talking about drawing the connections. So um, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so that's a hard thing to hear, right? That God would be, would, would not, um, would not allow somebody to repent, would not allow somebody, um, you know, and then would continue to, you know, to do these things. I mean, I think there's lots of ways to sort of interpret that and to think about it. But in the end, um, you know, Lots of people, even in the face of all of the things that they see that are going on in the world, all the stuff that's happening, still are trying to fix it on their own. They're still worshiping the gods of uh, success and power and money uh, and sex and marketing and materialism and whatever. I mean, you know, we're still sort of doing that. Um, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that that's going to work. Um, you know, so J- uh, John is really um, kind of making that point again. All right. So <laughs> it's 8 o'clock. Dang, we're not going to get out of Section 3. How did I do this before when I was teaching this? <laughs> I think I must have just blown through it without um, Okay. So... I didn't. I I didn't have all these distractions. I just kind of sat and lectured. All right. So, but this is a lot more fun, and and I've learned a whole lot more since I taught this class last time. All right. So then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud, with a rainbow above his head. This I like this guy already. He's just he's got like you know he's he's got the rainbow going. He's got the robe of a cloud. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the land. And then he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever and who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. Weird, eh? Okay, so here's the fun part about this whole thing. You want the fun part? Before we go home? Okay. 
So this angel shows up that has fiery legs, a face like the sun. Um, he stretches out. He's got, you know, he's like huge. He's got a little scroll, and he raises his hand and he says, "It's time." And you would expect that something would happen, right? So what happens? It's like nothing, right? Mm-hmm. But we're back then because he's swearing. Like he's there's this whole thing, right, that happens where um, there's things going on. The seven thunders, the seven, and and then John can't even tell you what he heard. He's forbidden from telling you what he heard. So you've again got God's presence sort of staying the hand, right, of the person who's saying it's time, because nothing happens. Because the next thing that happens after he eats the scroll is that he starts measuring things. <laughs> he's like, I was given a reed, and then I went, and I measured, and he had to measure things. <laughs> like, what the heck, dude? <laughs> but, but isn't this, but seriously, right? You're, you're leading, I'm like, and there's, there's like little... And this one, there's no respite, right? I mean, it's like, blah, boom, and then all of a sudden, nothing. But again, we're back to where you think that something bad is about to happen. You think it's all going to end. You think it's all over, and it's not. Um, and there's a mystery that's connected to all this, he says. Uh, and the mystery is contained in whatever he heard, and he can't talk about it. Um, and then he's given this scroll to eat. He can't write anything down. He's forced to eat the scroll it tastes sweet, but sours his stomach. What do you think that meant? Right. Yeah, it's like a hard pill to swallow. I mean... Yeah. It, like, whatever, whatever he was experiencing, like, so he's, you know, he's, he's taking it in. So whatever he's experiencing, there's a relief that's part of it, right? The sweetness. There's a relief to that. But then there's a, there's a bitterness that follows. And then he must go and prophesy. And then he's got to go tell about lots of stuff. Go prophesy about many things. And kings and so forth, right? Go, go, go tell more. Talk about more things, right? Um, now, there is a connection about, you know, with, with sort of ancient Jewish symbolism and hyperbole about, you know, um, the, you know scriptures being as sweet as honey and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but at any rate, uh, you know, this is, this is something that, if you go back through this, right, this is something that's kind of super important. Um, you get to the sixth... There's a fifth trumpet, there's a sixth trumpet, and then there's not a seventh. Because the angel showed up, but that last, the last trumpet was not sounded, right? So that, that's the, the thing that kind of looms large in a lot of like writers and a lot of people's minds um, about the last trumpet, you know, the idea of that last trumpet sounding. When we hear that final trumpet, you know, that's when it's that's when it all is going to happen. Um, but the beautiful thing is, is that John doesn't give us any indication. He's like basically told not to say anything. That there's there's a mystery that's involved in it, 
um, that, that you, no one knows, right? As Jesus said, no one, not even the Son of Man, knows uh, when the day of the Lord is going to happen, right? Um, that to predict it, to try to talk about it, to try to figure out how to put all these pieces together so that you can say, when I was a kid, um, they, uh, I had a guy come to our, our church that was all into the numbers of everything and then trying to figure out like when the dates were. So, boy, he had it pegged. It was going to happen in 1984. And he said, well, I'm not going to say that it's going to happen in, uh, and he actually had like a month, you know, in this. I'm not going to say that. And I'm not going to say it's going to happen in this month, but it could happen somewhere in between. But I'm not going to say that, right? He was like being all like, you know, provocative. Um, and so, of course, 1984 rolled around, and whatever month the guy picked, his name was Daryl Dunn. I, I still, he's still going at it. You go look the guy up on uh, the web, brother is still out there peddling his stuff.